Hey, well, good morning, family. It's good to see you guys. Grab your Bibles, open them up. First Peter chapter 3. I hope you guys do bring your Bibles so you can read for yourself uh, what we were reading. Uh, we're going to be in verses 13 through 22. First Peter 3, verses 13 through 22. And before we read uh, the passage, I want to start off with a, a quick confession here. Uh, Peter wrote some things in this passage that are pretty clear. Uh, pretty easy to understand, and he wrote some things that I'll just be honest with you guys, they were really hard for me to understand, okay? They were real difficult for me to understand. Matter of fact, they were difficult for a lot of people that are way smarter than me to understand. And so instead of just like surgically going through this passage, we're going to just aim for covering the main points of what he's talking about today. Sound good? All right? So if you would please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for you doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is a reading of God's word. Mm, thank you. Let's pray, family. God, I pray that uh, you would, in this moment, speak to us. Lord, I just confess my mind's kind of just all over the place. And so, God, I just pray that you would just focus my mind and everyone else. Focus our mind, focus our thoughts on what we have just heard from you, your precious word. We need you, God, to speak to us. We need you to change us. And Lord, just this morning, in fact, just lately, I, I've just been thankful for, I've been thankful for churches. Um, local churches. And I, God, I just thank you that even though we're people, that we just want you to do big things in spectacular instance instantaneous moments Lord you work through churches you work through the ordinary most of the change you've done in my life has been through church through commitment and covenanting with the church with the body it comes through week in and week out showing up to worship week in and week out hearing your word week in and week out singing the songs praying prayers for one another. And lo and behold, a year or two or three goes by and we're different. We've been changed in your presence. So God, I just pray that you would change us. 
bit by bit, piece by piece, shape us and sculpt us individuals and as a, as a church, as Crossway, into your image and likeness. We love you. Amen. Amen. Uh, in 2001, NBC broadcast the very first episode of their uh, show, Fear Factor. Do you guys remember that or ever watched that? It was a reality TV show in which the contestants, uh, this is right off their website here, must decide if they have the guts and the determination to face their fears. And that's what that show is about, facing your fears. See if you were chicken or not, chicken or not, to face your fears. The games that they had were absolutely outrageous. I mean, they were like helicopter jumps and tarantula torture cells and snake pits and leeches and scorpions and basically your worst nightmare come true that you had to face. And, and, and here was the crazy part about it. The crazy thing about it was like people like signed up for this. They volunteered to suffer fear, endure fear, in hope that they might win the grand prize. I know that's scary. Sign me up. I think I can beat it. I think I can do that. Each contestant came into the show believing that they were automatic shoe-ins for the grand prize. They came with a lot of confidence. Each contestant found that no one left the show unscathed. No one coasted through. Fear can be crippling without the proper resources to see us through to the other side. That's what they found out. And guys, whether we like to admit it or not, whether you have personally experienced it yet or not, as Christians, we each have our own point of crippling fear. And if you haven't experienced that yet, cheer up. You will. <laughs> you will. We think that we are a shoe-in for winning the prize of following Christ. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, fear becomes a factor. Fear becomes a factor. We start to think in that moment, look, is there a way for me that I could follow Jesus and avoid suffering and avoid being made fun of? Is there a way I can navigate this just right where both those things could happen? I, I know what some of you might be thinking. You know, hey, I'm not afraid of suffering for following Jesus. That doesn't bother me. I have no problem making my beliefs known in conversations with my unbelieving friends or coworkers or family members. I'm willing to suffer ridicule. I'm willing to suffer some mocking or exclusion or abandonment or loneliness or whatever the world has to throw at me. Some Christians are afraid of that stuff. I'm not afraid of that stuff because I just don't care what people think about me. That may be you. That may be how you think. Could I just... Can I just gently remind you of who wrote this letter? Who wrote this letter? Peter. But you remember Peter, don't you? Peter? You know, before he was Apostle Peter, Disciple Peter? This is the same Peter who arrogantly told Jesus that if every disciple denied him, he alone would not deny him. This is the same Peter that emphatically, I picture him almost with his fist clenched. You know how sometimes we talk. Emphatically promised in front of the other 12 in the room, no less, 
that he alone was willing to die for Jesus before he would deny Jesus. Death before dishonor, Lord. I'll never do it. That Peter. But when the pressure was on, every last disciple denied Jesus in the end. Jesus went alone to the cross. And that includes Peter. Now I'll give it to him. He outlasted the others, the other contestants. He outlasted them. But in the end, fear became a factor for even him. In the end, he eventually got scared. He caved like everyone else. Every one of us has a fear point when it comes for suffering for the name of Jesus. Now, yours may be stronger and longer than someone else's, but we all have one. Can we at least admit that today? Peter is teaching us not just what God told him, but what he experienced. He's teaching us from his own experience what he learned, that instead of denying that we're afraid of suffering, we should actually admit our fear so that we might overcome it. And here's how we overcome our fear of suffering for the name of Christ. Make up our mind to suffer for the right thing the right way. That's how we overcome our fear. We need to determine, we need to make up our mind to suffer for the right thing the right way. And this actually comes from verse 16 in the text that Michael just read for us. Verse 16 says, Have a good conscience. Have a good conscience. So that, here's the purpose of having that good conscience, so that when you are, str- when you are slander those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So this idea of a good conscience, the NIV translates it as a clean conscience, is the idea of doing the right thing the right way. Okay? Peter instructs us to live God's way in society. That, that's the right thing. So Publicly live out our faith. Do the, that's the right thing. But we're to do it in a way that is gentle to those who oppose us. That's the right way. That's doing the right thing the right way. And so this means that we are determined, in our minds, we have determined not to harm or hate our enemy in our responses to them. And we have determined not to harm or hate the name of our Lord in the way we live. We hold both of those things together, and we're not willing to let go of either one of them or emphasize one over the other. We hold them together in tension. This is what we make up our mind to do. When we make up our mind to do both what is right by God and what is right by our enemies, Peter says we have a good conscience. We have a clean conscience before them and before God. And that gives us the power to suffer unfairly sometimes. Rosa Parks said something very similar about what gave her the courage to endure reviling when she refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white man in 1955. She said, quote, I've learned over the years that when one's mind is made up, this diminishes fear. Knowing what must be done does away with fear. Close quote. Making up our mind to do the right thing the right way gives us the clean conscience we need to suffer for Christ. So how do we suffer for the name of Christ the right way? 
should be thinking that question right about now. How do we do that? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. Peter says, make Christ most awesome in your mind. If we're going to suffer the right, for the right thing for the right, in the right way, we need to make Christ most awesome in our mind. Look at the text here, verse 15. But in your hearts, in the core, the center of your being, that's not just emotion, the center of who you are as a person, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Make Christ most awesome in your mind. Now, when I use that word, uh, awesome, I don't mean it like a teenager in the 90s would use that word when they heard a new song that they really, really liked. Oh, man, that was totally awesome. Like, that's not how I'm using the word, okay? I'm using, like, the true, actual definition of the word. I mean that which produces awe in us. That's what it's awesome it's that feeling of almost reverent fear of being in the presence of something greater than you. Or being in the presence, sometimes it's for us, is being in the presence of someone that is so powerful or so beautiful or so talented that you almost have like kind of like a, a reverent fear of them. That they're almost terrifying to encounter. You walk up in front of someone, they're just so beautiful, you're kind of like, oh, hey, how are you? you got to have that reverent fear a little bit. You're seeing beauty, or they're very talented. They're more talented than you are, and you know it. You're in the presence of something great. Peter says, we make up our mind to become in awe of Christ above all others. In the core of our being, we determine to set Christ apart. We set him apart as the most beautiful, the most powerful person in the known universe. That's what we do in our heart. That's what it means to set him apart as Lord. To overcome our fear of suffering for his name, we need, as psychologist Ed Welch says, to make Christ big in our mind so that people might become smaller. That's how we do it. This means that we need to see Jesus as the Lord. You and I, when we're feeling that fear factor kick in, we need to see Jesus as the Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not someday, but today, right now, in this situation, in this present moment, in that space where you're feeling that emotion. He's King. He's Lord. He rules. He rules all things. We need to determine our mind. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. All things were created by his will. All things are sustained and controlled by his sovereign command or consent. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is not merely a man from Galilee. He's not merely, merely and only a human like you and I are. He is the Lord. Here's how you know. You want to know? Here's how you know for sure. He suffered a death like all men do, but he was raised back to life and defeated death like no man can do. That's how you know. Jesus defeated the most powerful forces in reality. He defeated death. He defeated demons. He defeated hatred. He defeated fear. All that stuff was coming at him. He defeated it. He defeated it through his suffering. He is the Lord. He is victorious. He reigns. Can the church say amen? Amen. amen. Through the physical burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, he proved in history and in his physical body that he is the most powerful person in the world. And he's your Lord. 
and he's your God. That's what you need to set your mind on. Even though your reputation may be trashed publicly because you hold a Christian belief or you may get made fun of by your family for obeying Jesus or you may get dumped by your girlfriend or your boyfriend because you obey Jesus in every aspect of your life, Peter says, determined to make Christ most awesome in your mind, in your heart, the core of your being. When we make God look big in our minds, people will begin to look smaller to us. Their awe starts to diminish because we're more in awe of him. So look, Peter tells us, look at the beautiful gift Jesus gives you of eternal life with him forever. Who else has given you a beautiful gift like that? What compares to that gift? But Christ has given that gift to you. Look at that gift. Look at what he's given to you. Look, look at the unmatched power of ultimate judgment that he holds over demons and death. Be in awe of him, and you will not be in awe of them. Christ suffered, but he is now risen, and he is ascended and even ruling at the right hand of the Father. This is our Lord. And by the way, brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we make Christ most awesome in our mind is to read the scriptures daily. Yes, I said daily. How do I make Christ most awesome? You need to read what he says. You need to hear his words. You're hearing everyone else's words. Hear his words. You need to read the scriptures every day, brothers and sisters. Don't wait for Sunday to read the scriptures. If you are waiting for Sunday for someone to read to you the scriptures, you're doing it wrong, okay? Feed yourself every day. I would even say twice a day. I mean, how many meals do you eat a day? Don't say out loud, all right? Maybe four or five. That's all right. Read the scriptures at least twice, once in the morning, once before you go to bed. But you gotta feed yourself on that. That's your job. That's your responsibility too. Every, a little bit every day. And guess what? Drip, drip, drip. Over time, over weeks, over months, over years, it starts sinking in. Don't do this. I'm afraid. Okay, what will help me now? I'm, you can do that. I'm just saying, feed it every day. It has a cumulative effect, that discipline. Christ will become awesome to you because you'll get sucked into this world where God is the Lord. Suffering the right way means to determine to make an explanation for your lifestyle. You need to determine to make an explanation for your lifestyle. 1 Peter 3.15, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. The word there is apologia. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What he's talking about hope is like that eschatological hope. Like, why are you living the way you're living it? And not like, I, I have hope that things will go good today. Okay? I'm like a hopeful, optimistic person. That's not what he's talking about. The hope is that eternal inheritance, the kingdom that is coming, and I'm living now in light of that kingdom. I'm not going to wait till after I die to live in that kingdom. So he's saying, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, Peter's always pulling on these tensions, right? He's pulling on the church to hold these things in tension. This and this, this and this. 
This is what it means to be an honorable exile. Most of the time when we quote this verse, we use it to support the field of apologetics, which is a very appropriate application of this verse. Uh, apologetics. We think of a, 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 a Christian on one side of a big auditorium, and we think of a, like an atheist or a Muslim on the other side, and they're like behind a table, and they're like formally debating at some topic. That's like what we tend to think about, right, when we think of apologetics. That's not exactly what Peter means. He means more of like in this informal questioning of your faith that's going to pop up without notice in the course of your life from coworkers, family members, friends, neighbors, you name it. That's more of the scenario he's talking about here. That, that, that these are people that are needling us about why we live the way of the kingdom. So the way that the culture is living. Because we do not affirm that everything that the culture does, they'll accuse us of being oppressive people. Uh, because we uh, live like we're part of Christ's kingdom right now, we might be accused of being bigoted people, or we might be accused of being uninformed people, or non-thinking, unintellectual people. These are the types of slander that they might use. And he's saying, be prepared for that. Peter says, you need to be able to explain why you believe what you believe. Not just what you believe. Well, I just don't believe that, or I just believe that. He says you need to be able to explain as a Christian why you believe what you believe in words that they might understand. Not just churchy words. That sounds like some foreign language you're speaking. He's not saying gather ammo to shame your opponent into oblivion. That's not suffering the right way. He is saying refuse to be crippled in fear by their questioning. Have courage. Tell it. Say it. Just calmly explain why you believe or act in the way that you do as a Christian in words that they might understand. They may not be persuaded when you do this. They might, but they might not be persuaded when you do this. But at least they'll have a chance to understand because you're trying to talk with them about that. You're trying to engage them a little bit with that. And he says, do this with a gentle tone. That means like, do it without using abrasive language. Where they don't want to listen to what you have to say. Do this in a way that honors their dignity as fellow image bearers of God. Explain yourself in the hopes that you might win them to God. This goes back to kind of what we talked about last week right? How we respond to our enemies. The reply, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, that is not gentle, nor is it really an explanation. There's some truth in that, but it's not gentle, it's not really an explanation. In fact, it's a conversation stopper, not a conversation starter. It only furthers the stereotype that we as Christians are not really thinking people. In fact, it's not even really a completely honest statement if you think about it. Think about it. You didn't adopt all your beliefs like that, did you? Did you? What actually happened was the Bible said it. You didn't like it. You wrestled with it. You asked some questions about it. God provided his spirit to help you understand it, and then gradually, you accepted it. 
that's a little closer to what actually happened. So yes, we always start our explanation with what God says. Yes, we always start our explanation with the character of God. There is no other place for us as Christians to start. We start there. But we explain the goodness of it to people in a way that they might understand it. So we say, yeah, this is what we believe. We believe it's right. And then go on and say, now why we think it's good? Because they say, well, if your God says it's right and your God is apparently good, then why is it good? You should be able to explain why it is good for society, good for family. And why do we do this? Why do we explain in words that they might understand? Because we're not trying to destroy them. They might be trying to destroy us but we are not going to try to destroy them. We're actually trying to win them to Christ, that they might have life. Sexuality is a very big area where Christians believe and live differently than our society. So in an informal situation, someone might say something like this. You Christians believe that gay people have to remain celibate and single if they're going to follow Jesus Christ. And I think that you are condemning them to a life of sadness and loneliness with no intimate relationships. I think that's really dangerous for a person's psyche. I think that's very dangerous teaching for society. And I don't think we should embrace that. How do you explain that what God said about sexuality is not just right, but actually good for them? How do you explain that? The goodness, not the rightness, the goodness of that. Because that's a different question. Well, you might start off by saying something like this. Well, the idea that someone can only have a fulfilled life if they are in an intimate, romantic relationship actually seems more narrow and oppressive to me because not everybody finds that. Not everybody finds that. You're kind of putting a premium on like that's the only way to do it. So you're saying that you can't be single and be fulfilled? I think that's actually pretty narrow-minded and oppressive. Especially when you see how Christ opened the doors for many deep, meaningful relations within the church family that he created, which I think is a much better way to live and resource that he gives. That's giving a gentle explanation based on Christian beliefs. Or you may have a son that questions why it's bad to cohabitate with his girlfriend when, when marriage seems really restrictive. It's restricting freedom. It seems very oppressive to him. So why should I get married? Why should I just live with my girlfriend, he says. Well, you might say something like, well, you know, son, cohabitation is actually a very fragile arrangement. It's a way more fragile arrangement than marriage because it's based on a consumer relationship. It's an arrangement that's based on actually self-love. I'm here for me. I'm in this for me, not other love, which is the construct of marriage. It's a covenant relationship. We believe that God is a God who gave himself for our good by binding himself to us through the promise that he will never leave us even when things get rough. And we just think that's actually better, healthier, other flourishing relationship than what you want. Now listen, I, I admit and I know that these are oversimplified examples. Like no one's gonna like walk up and ask you that exact question. Like I get that, all right? But I just want to try to illustrate to you today what it might sound like to gently explain our Christian lifestyle to scoffers. They genuinely don't understand. They don't like it because they just don't understand it. 
in order to have a good conscience that will empower you and I to suffer for Christ, you will have to think through your beliefs. You'll have to think it through all the way down to the ground. You will have to spend some time and energy. You will need to be able to explain why you live the way you do in a way that is honoring to your opponents and honoring to the Lord. That's going to take a little bit of studying, right? That's going to take a little bit of time and some effort. Frankly, I think that all of us could do a little bit of, a little bit of work in this area in our life. Me too, me included. Well, finally, in order to suffer the right way, you need to determine to make Christ's suffering the strength and the refuge of your heart. You determine to make Christ's suffering the strength and the refuge of your heart. Let's go back to the text here. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. He is not asking you and I to do anything that he has not himself done, right? Leaders go first, right? Well, good leaders go first. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Why bother burning all these calories and all this energy on on suffering the right way? Because Peter's been talking about this for a while. He'll talk about it again next week. Why bother treating our enemies with dignity while continuing to live in a way that honors God, even though that means we might suffer more if we do it that way? Why bother with this way of life, this Jesus way? Because that's exactly how Christ treated us. That's why. Even, get this, when we were his enemies, when we were throwing out accusations, when we were slandering his church, his people, and his name, That's how he treated us, brothers and sisters. Christ lived a completely righteous life, yet he suffered unfairly. Christ suffered for us, the unrighteous. He didn't suffer for righteous people. He didn't suffer even for people that were unrighteous, but they kind of like, they got some potential. No, he suffered for unrighteous people. Me and you. For the express purpose that he might bring us to God. That's a powerful phrase. Peter, that, that, like, that phrase is like not used anywhere else. That he might bring us, unrighteous people, to God. That, that, that phrase is a picture of Jesus reaching across the cosmic divide that separated us from a holy God and literally pulling us across the pit of judgment to God so that we might be safe with him that is what Christ's suffering accomplished for us that's what him suffering for the right thing the right way did for you and for me we have benefited from him suffering the right way for the right thing are you guys tracking with me so this is why we do it this way that's the gospel that's the gospel in a nutshell of Jesus Christ. And that is what strengthens us to suffer in a way that honors our enemies and honors God. Though we're gonna take some shots if we do that way. We're gonna be a little, our vulnerable parts are gonna be out there. But that's what gives us the strength to do it. But not only that, this same gospel is a refuge to our heart. 
It's a refuge to our heart. I mean, like, what about the times when you and I fail to suffer the right way for his name? Like, what happens if or when, yeah, you suffer, but you use the truth to bludgeon people over the head and the name of Christ is stained among unbelievers. You use the truth of Christ as a club to assault people instead of a key to set them free. What happens when you do that? Or, or what about this? What if you avoid suffering because you got scared in the moment? Fear became a factor for you. And so you got afraid of representing Christ. You found your fear point, and in that moment, you dishonored Christ. In that moment, you lied because it would go easier for you to lie. You hid. You went along with the sins of the culture because it was just too overwhelming for you. You didn't want to stand up and go, nah, nah, I'm not going to participate in that. Nah, I'm not going to do that. And now your conscience is tormenting you today because you know you did it. You know you failed your Lord. You know you denied Christ. What, what about in that scenario? Peter says later in the passage, it's just a very interesting thing. Peter says, remember your baptism. Isn't that strange? Let your baptism remind you in that moment of what Christ has done for you. Let that be a refuge for your conscience. Just like Noah was saved by God's mercy from the floodwaters of judgment against sin, let your baptism waters remind your tortured conscience that you have been lifted up from certain death, just as Christ himself was lifted up and resurrected. Yes, the waters of judgment have come down from God for your sin, but you have been rescued. You have been raised above those waters through the resurrection of Christ. Isn't that good news? The baptism is the gospel of Jesus acted out. Like Noah, you and I should have died with all the unrighteous that were on the earth. But by God's mercy, he has rescued us safely, not in a boat, but in Christ. When you fail to suffer for Christ the right way, let your baptism point you, your conscience back to the resurrected Christ who has forgiven you of your sin. He has forgiven you of your weakness. He has forgiven you of your denials. He has forgiven you of your cowardliness. You are forgiven in Christ. They have been drowned to death under God's judgment and you bear them no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Because of the gospel, your conscience is clean. It is good. Because he has made it so for you. You do not have to be crippled by the fear of suffering for him, and you do not be, need to be afraid of failing to suffer for him. You're in Christ. He loves you. I love you guys too. I want to pray for you, okay? Jesus, we have so much to learn from you. We thank you for being a loving truth teller to us. We thank you for 
saving us, reaching across the divide and bringing us safely to God through your suffering, through your resurrection. We love you, Jesus. I pray that you would, just today by your word and by the Holy Spirit, you would continue to shape us, shape us, carve out some things that need to be carved out, cut out the idols that we bow down to along with bowing down to you, cut them out, cut away the fear, Take your pruning shears and trim that fear away we have of suffering for the name. Nobody likes getting ridiculed. But you've called us to do that from time to time. Cut that out. Give us, give us a righteous mind. Give us a made-up mind that, like you, we are going to suffer for the right thing the right way so that you might be honored. You might be glorified in Port Orchard. Make it so, in Jesus' name, amen.